Welcome to the Politically Incorrect Podcast. I'm Jim Williams, your host. With me, of course, we have Joe Henderson on the right. No, left. Sorry, Joe. On the left. Sometimes right, sometimes in the middle. You never know. And Tom Jackson, normally conservative, but sometimes eh, he he almost went with Hillary, but in his column, and you'll read about it, he just couldn't get there. Gentlemen, always good to chat with you. Thomas, why don't you talk a little bit, if you could, about uh, your guy Donald Trump, your 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 buddy here. What's, wait, uh, wait, wait, what? a, wait, a, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay. To be, to begin with, Donald yes, Trump is no is no member of the right. Let me let me start there. Okay. Number two, number two, he is. I mean, by by every word and deed, this guy demonstrates that he is tone deaf about what about what the concerns of genuine conservatives are so calling him my guy could not be further from the truth uh but but the guy continues to amaze doesn't he he uh, does he got a he, he got himself a purple heart somebody right. somebody one of one of his supporters came up with a purple heart and the uh, as you pointed out jim in our in our pre-show uh he, he made the he, he pointed out that this is an easy. This is the best way to get one without getting shot at. And I, I, you know, there's he's 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 got a point there, but uh, I, I think it goes to uh, even more of his tone deafness. How much recognizing that you get one that way? Good gosh, I just can't even imagine what people. If my dad were alive today, after having gotten two of the things uh, oh during goodness. World War II, I think that he would have flipped out. I think he, I, I think in his heart of hearts. My dad would have been a Trump guy, but I think he also would have flipped out today. So, Dad in heaven, don't turn over in your grave. Yeah, uh, you know, imagine imagine the opportunity that Donald just fumbled one of many. The guy, the 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 veteran who earns the Purple Heart, offers it to the Donald as as a gift, and. Wouldn't it have been something if Donald had said, you know, thank you very much, but I really don't feel right about accepting this because of what it stands for, you know? Uh, it's people like you who put your lives on the line for us who deserve these these medals, um, but no. <laughs> no. Tone deaf is one well, way to but, put it. Um, tone deaf is one way to put it. Joe, you're, you're, you're leaving out the fact that he has – that Donald Trump has sacrificed on behalf of this country. He said so Sunday morning with, with, with Stephanopoulos. He has sacrificed on behalf, of the, uh, of, on behalf of the country by giving people jobs. He has, yeah. gotten, he has given well, tens of thousands of people jobs, he had and that is them. a – a, well, some of them anyway. Some of them anyway, some yeah. Of, I, I don't think the man. It, it, it's uh, it reminds me of the Princess Bride. He keeps using he keeps using that word, but I don't think he knows what it means. You know, guys, uh, here on the polit- politically incorrect podcast, easy for me to say. The uh, the thing that you know, Tom, you're talking about uh, him being on with George Stephanopoulos this week. I I can't recall. When two political candidates running for office, literally on you know separate morning shows, could have botched things up worse. You had Hillary Clinton on Fox with Chris Wallace, 
basically saying that anything that James Comey said was, oh, no, 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 no. You misunderstood what Mr. Comey said. Let me explain it to you. It's like, please just own it. All right, fine. Then you switch over to Stephanopoulos and, you know, Trump is basically reinventing our relationship with Russia while at the same time attacking Mr. Khan and and keeping going something that he should never have picked up in the first place. So you, you got, it's like a train wreck you're watching on both channels. If If I were not such a cynical sort, I would almost say that you can almost make a case that Trump is deliberately trying to lose the election. I don't know if he's, you know, what's going on inside that brain of his, but what he, what he says and does is outrageous. And, Jim, you are absolutely correct uh, to point out the foibles of Hillary Clinton, uh, the esteemed PolitiFact fact-checking organization, uh, judged her statements about the FBI director to be a pants-on-fire lie, one of many she has told. If the Republicans had any sort of campaign going with a candidate who's, who wasn't crazy, they would be 10, 15 points ahead right now, and the election would be essentially over. But they're not. If they were, exactly, exactly, Joe. If And, and, and I'll... I'll uh, this will not be the first time I've said this. I'm sure it won't be the last. If the Republicans had nominated any of the other 16, and I include the people who never got on the big stage in that group, if they had nominated any of those people, they would be at least five points ahead, maybe ten. This this thing might be absolutely over. Donald Trump had an opportunity to talk about two things this weekend, and that was the 1.2% growth in GDP in the last quarter, which was awful and is trending down. And 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 is triggered. It's been part of seven straight days, I think, of of the of the stock market being down, and the stock market is looking forward. I think perhaps we are in some economic trouble. Did that come up at all with Donald Trump over the weekend? No. And the other thing he could have talked about is exactly what you said, Joe. Uh, Hillary completely contradicting James Comey, and yet he is off talking about a gold star family. Are you kidding me? I mean, it's, I, I, I get, I get from, from my, from my, from, the, uh, from my friends who are, who are supporters of Donald Trump that yes, Pat Smith got up on there and she is just as much a gold star uh, mom as anybody is. Her, her, her son was killed in, in Benghazi and she thinks that it's Hillary Clinton's fault. And she thinks that Hillary Clinton lied to her and she deserved as much attention, if, if anybody did, coming out of a convention as the Khan family did. But Hillary, despite saying, well, she perhaps didn't understand what I was telling her at the time, and letting it go was the shrewd thing to do. I also think it's the shrewd thing to do to keep saying what she's saying about, uh, about Comey. That's not what I heard. That's not what I heard. I think he said I'm okay because that's what the Clintons do. They never admit anything. They are John Wayne. Never apologize. Never explain. But they are a lot smoother at that than Trump oh. has proven to be. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. No question ask, about it. Let me ask you guys something about Sally Bradshaw, an advisor to Jeb Bush who left the party this weekend. 
and basically became an independent, but said that if it were a close election, she would vote for Hillary Clinton. How big a deal is it that Sally Bradshaw decided to leave the uh, Republican Party? I think I think not a very big deal. I mean, I think it's interesting. I think it's indicative of of what's going on with the establishment Republican, the GOPE. Uh, that part of the party is appalled by Donald Trump and is wanting to make sure that none of the stink that uh, that, that adheres to him uh, rubs off on them. But I mean, the the person that she's closest to in the party didn't go anywhere near the convention. I uh, that makes perfect sense to me. There was a there was a, a Republican congressman for, from New York who came out in the past day or so and said mm-hmm. he's voting for, for Hillary Clinton. So this is all part of, of what's going to probably turn out to be like a 45-state massacre by, by Hillary Clinton. So who wants to own that? Yeah, I, and, and you're absolutely right, Tom. And, and I don't think Sally Bradshaw's defection – is really any more than another brick in the wall because you know it wasn't like Jeb Bush uh, had a lot of admiration for uh, for Trump and she was one of his closest advisors. Um, but what almost has to happen, uh, or I, I would imagine what what the the moderates in the in the Republican Party secretly hope will happen, is that they get their tails kicked so badly in November. That the party has to recognize, that, folks, we got a problem, and we got to we got to get back to where most people in America reside, and that is somewhere middle left, middle right. It's the extremes have taken over uh, the party and kind of turned it into a nut house at this point, and the only possible way to deal with that is just a resounding rejection by the American people, as Tom says. A 45-state massacre. I think it could be worse than that. You know, here on the Politically Incorrect podcast, we have Joe Henderson. We have Tom Jackson. You just heard from Joe Henderson. Tom Jackson, question to you. Would it take – I mean, what would a 45-state blowout mean to the party? Would it be a a cleansing, as Joe was saying, or would it be a fracturing of the party? I am leaning more toward a, a cleansing than a fracturing. You all will recall that after the 2012 election, uh, when there were high hopes for Mitt Romney, who, was, who walked straight out of central casting, if there was ever a guy who was minted to be president of the United States, it was Mitt Romney. And yet he lost and lost pretty good. Um, and out of that came the, uh, the autopsy report right. that said that the, that the Republican Party needed to, to do an awful lot of things to be competitive in a national election uh, in four years. And here came Donald Trump, who was the repudiation of the essence of that, of that report. Among other things, the, the, the report said we have to, the, 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 the GOP has to get on the right side of resolving immigration. And I still think that that's where Marco Rubio took one for the team, that he, got a, that he was elected, he saw that report, he he stood up for for immigration reform, part of the part of the gang of eight. And when the whole thing fell apart, because because the the hardcore noisy part of the GOP wasn't ready to have any part of that, that dogged him into the primaries. We are so now the GOP has as its standard bearer a guy who's, who who 
made made his bones saying that he was going to deport people and build a wall. Well, I'm all for border security, and I am all for tight visa controls, and I am, but I am also pretty much – as a Republican and a conservative, I've pretty much come around to the idea that if we could get border security and we could get visa control, then let's talk about what to do about the 11 million who are here and aren't causing any other trouble except for the fact that they got here illegally and, and resolve that, that situation once and for all. But, you know, we, re- we rejected it. I'm going I'm to own it. We rejected it, and, and I'm hoping that when this debacle comes down, we will say, okay, that's over with, and, 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 cl- and take that long shower and come back together as, as a more united, thoughtful, rational party, the one that has dominated politics uh, below the White House for the past six years. You know, the other part of that, Tom, and I'm sure Joe wants to chime in here, is that I'm not – does Paul Ryan come out of this as the, as the leader of the, uh, of the new Republican Party? Or who, you know, who are the stars that, that step up out of this? I mean, there, you know, there are a lot of guys who were left standing at the altar and pretty much took a, a whacking from, from Trump in the, in the primaries. And, you know, there weren't a lot of guys who ended up looking good out of this deal. So when all this cleansing is done, who comes out of this and, and puts everything back together? There's got to be a leader. I th- Well, I don't think it's Ted Cruz as much as his heart of hearts thinks that he did the right thing at the convention, and maybe he did. Um, but I think that it comes from one of the bright young senators who've been elected in the past couple of cycles. I like Ben Sass. Uh, I, I think that Ben Sass from uh, oh no I'm going to say it wrong he's from Arkansas and I think that he has been he was the first guy to say I'm never Trump he was the first elected official the high elected official to say that he was a never Trumper and that he was going to cast his vote for a rational conservative um, I think he's he's a bright guy he's a he's ex military he's Harvard educated I think that's where. And he, he was principled all the way through. He was principled about resisting the Iran deal. Um, he was the leader of the senators who sent the open letter to the mullahs, which was actually directed at, at, at President Obama. Uh, I, I think the eyes of the nation, uh, the, at least the conservative eyes of the nation, are going to be looking at people like Ben Sass, people like Mike Lee, and the senator from Nebraska whose name escapes me just this moment. Um, that's where they're going to be looking. Not so much Paul Ryan. Well, and I would chime in here and just say, you know, we've seen parties that look dead in the water before, uh, most notably the Democrats. Uh, after the uh, the Walter Mondale massacre, where uh, President Reagan had fifty, almost fifty nine percent of the vote and carried forty nine of the fifty states. Uh, the Dukakis blowout, uh, where the, it was not quite that resounding, but it was still a, an awful good uh, rear-end kicking. Uh, President George H.W. Bush had 54% of the vote and carried 40 states. And what happened at that point was that the Democrats kind of said, okay, we are dangerously sliding toward irrelevancy. And we got to do something about it. 
and the uh, if we if memory serves me correctly, the economy kind of gave Bill Clinton an opening uh, as he ran against uh, President Bush in uh, '92, and he kept pounding that message home: "It's the economy, stupid." You know, we all remember that line, and he he managed to get the Democrats to swing away from their extreme left positions and get back into the middle, stop trying to tax the hide off of the American public, listen to what the people are saying. And the result was that Bill Clinton won the next two presidential elections. And then uh, Barack Obama has won the last two. So I think what will happen, the the conservative message is not a bad message. Uh, A lot of people, if they felt that the that they wouldn't overdo it, which, you know, I know Tom's going to say, well, what about the Democrats? Yes, they do that too. But if you can give a safe, sane, logical message, you can win. The American people will listen to you, and you have to tune out the extreme left or the extreme right. And neither party has done a very good job of that uh, in the last very many years. They're letting the fringe run the party. I know that um, in the Mitt Romney situation, uh, I had the the pleasure of um, spending a great deal of time with Mr. Romney when he was, prior to him becoming governor, when he ran the uh, Olympics in Salt Lake City. Uh, Dr. Harvey Schiller, a mutual friend and somebody who was a client at the time, uh, had me work with Mitt in D.C., uh, getting him to the National Press Club and getting him to a number of, of speaking engagements. So I had an op- I was able to spend a sizable amount of time with him, and I thought him to be a very honest and very honorable guy. And from what I understood and saw from a distance, he certainly did a wonderful job as a governor in Massachusetts. And then uh, the Mitt Romney that I thought I knew uh, – when he became a presidential candidate was so far away from the Mitt Romney, who was the governor of Massachusetts. I mean, I could have, I could have easily voted for Mitt Romney, but not the Mitt Romney that ran, uh, you know, for president in large part because of what Joe just said, he'd gotten dragged so far to the right that I'm not even sure he knew who the heck he was at that point in time. And, and to Joe, and, and I know Tom, from your standpoint, I'm concerned that the what we end up with after this election on the Democratic side is what are the Bernie people going to do? On the Republican side, what's the Freedom Caucus people going to do? Uh, you know, it, there's still fringes of both parties that are going to want to to extract a pound of flesh for something, and I don't think they're going to go easily off into the night. Well, and, and well, yeah, I, I would. Well, I I was just going to say that part of the problem, uh, you you alluded to Mitt Romney, and you're absolutely correct, Uh, a candidate from either party is not allowed to be a centrist in the nominating process because only the most dedicated people come out, and they're the most hardcore in their beliefs, and so they're going to drag a candidate from either party to the farther to the left or farther to the right and make it difficult for them to even win the nomination. Jeb Bush just found that out. He did not appeal to the almighty base 
which then his campaign never got started. And meanwhile, we saw what Donald Trump was doing, and he took he caught fire. So I think we really need to uh, overhaul the way the candidates are chosen to begin with. It's it's a lousy system. It really is, and it and it winds up making them take distorted views to what they really believe in, and uh, the the election results tend to bear that out. I'm I, I'm not I'm not going to disagree with that. I I I kind of like the way that it that it rolls out, that it's prolonged, that it's messy, uh, that it's everything that representative democracy ought to be. Uh, but but by the same token, I am I, I I am shocked every four years, and I don't know why I'm shocked. Maybe I should just say I am I am uh, I am I have my being appalled refreshed every four years by the whiplash that happens in Iowa and, and New Hampshire before things really start to get rolling. And, and yeah, Joe's exactly right that you have uh, wacky positions being staked out on behalf of farmers in Iowa, uh, ethanol and that sort of thing. And, and the glad handing that goes on in New Hampshire where you have to meet every last voter before you can reasonably be assured of getting their vote. Uh, that sort of stuff gives me pause. And it seems to me like the, the most powerful nation on earth ought to have a, a better system to to choose its nominees than what it does. Uh, I, I kind of think that going into smoke-filled rooms might be better than, than what we're what we're, what we've got right now. I mean, the um, I, I'll say again that I think that the two guys running for vice president are far more suitable to the mood of the nation just now. Than either of the nominees for president, I, I, and they and they were chosen by essentially committees uh, of, of high-powered elites. And you know, I, let's kind of I, I could go back to that. I could, I you know what? I could, this, I, I, I could set the I've, first I've, amendment I've, aside for that. I've resisted saying this out loud, but since you uh, uncorked the bottle there, I would agree with you because. Uh, and Bernie Sanders folks would argue, well, that's what the Democrats did in rigging the, the nomination for Hillary, and that's a, you know, that's a debatable subject. But what I would like to see happen in the next cycle, wouldn't this be, wouldn't this be a giggle? If somebody came along, a candidate, and said, you know what, I'm not going to go to Iowa, and I'm not going to go to New Hampshire, because I don't, you know, uh, I just don't think that my message resonates there. And we're going to start this thing when the when the bigger states roll in, or at least skip Iowa. It's a, it's a caucus. Who cares? And if you want to go to New Hampshire, okay, out of tradition, uh, whatever. But just say say what everybody knows, that, this, that, that the Iowa caucus should not have the outsized influence on the nominating process that it does. Well, Joe, you know, has just, Joe has um, just in, uh, just endorsed the Rudy Giuliani strategy, and uh, see how well yeah. that worked out for Rudy. Well, yeah, Rudy by, by the way, by the way, I would like to do some housekeeping. Um, it, senator Tom Cotton is the senator that I like from Arkansas. Ben Sass is the is the is the senator I like from Nebraska, and I just want right. to get that on the record. Now let's resume. Thank okay, you. Okay, I was just going to say, Tom. Um, I, if having covered these things, 
if they didn't do another caucus, I would be the happiest person on the planet. I mean, I, I swear. <laughs> It's it's almost like going through Pennsylvania Dutch country and and ha- happening into an Amish situation. It's like you know, honestly, it's quaint. It's it's lovely that it happened, but please, there's got to be a better way. I mean, it's just it's it's terrible. I mean that that system is just absolutely insane. Plus, it also discriminates against so many different. Um, minorities who who really don't go out to caucus it's a very uncomfortable situation and it can be very you know i've been to iowa and i can tell you it can be very uncomfortable out there if you happen to be someone from one of the you know representing a candidate that's not one of the top two or three you can be intimidated you know from sitting in the room being basically told by others what are you nuts why would you even consider you know supporting that person it's the most undemocratic way of electing a person i've ever seen in my life in defense of the system though iowa certainly didn't pick the gop nominee did it no that's no. true no no it didn't i'm just uh, i'm just i'm just i'm just leaving that out there. But, but, fellas, right now, I, I wish in my heart of hearts that Republicans had superdelegates who could have been locked in by somebody that, that Republican establishment people knew and trusted and were willing to stake their political futures on. Uh, and instead, uh, instead, we get this wild card that was ginned up by people crossing lines in early open primary states. Um, and 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 appealing to the worst nature of the Republican base, I am all in favor of superdelegates. Ooh, ooh, ooh! Boy, Tom, I don't know. You may have to give up your conservative card for that one. I I I I don't think that that is anti-conservatism at all. I think that that is anti-populism. Is what that is. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the Democrats cooked that one in because they they didn't want any more Eugene McCarthy's or or George McGovern's, and so at the end, you know, that's that was basically the genesis behind getting the superdelegates in, and that was basically those party uh, that's as close to the smoke-filled rooms that you guys had talked about earlier as you can right, get. And- and a, and a little piece of history, they were mm-hmm. superdelegates were lined up for Hillary Clinton in 2008, mm-hmm. and then when Barack Obama began to knock down big numbers in the early primaries, yep. they became persuadable. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm not I'm saying that the system is not flawed at all, that it 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 helps a party pick the most likely winning candidate that 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 also fulfills the the uh, the bedrock. Of the party, right, and the party elders, if you will, uh, being mm-hmm. the super delegates, uh, can be swayed, as you said. But at the same time, they can also hold uh, the feet to the fire. And I doubt if the super delegates had been on the Republican side that there would be a Donald J. Trump as the uh, as the nominee. Highly unlikely. Yeah. Hey, guys. You know, we've been talking national about national politics here on the politically incorrect podcast, but there's some very fascinating things going on in Florida. 
And, uh, you know, I know the two of you are very much in tune with what's going on with a number of the different races. Anything that uh, piques your interest as we uh, get close to the, uh, the upcoming primary? Joe? Well, I, it's going to be interesting to see, for me to see uh, how large Marco Rubio's victory margin is in the uh, Senate race, because his his opponent, uh, Carlos Baruf, has certainly put his money where his mouth is, and I mean that literally. Um, he has not let up the attack, despite the polls that show him more than hopelessly outnumbered, and he's, you know... Um, self-funding and he says he's in the race all the way up to when the primary delivers 65 70 percent of the vote to uh, to marco i think anything less than a resounding victory for marco and i mean you know 60 percent and above uh, maybe even higher is going to be a little warning uh, bell that we should pay attention to but i i think marco will will crush him that's that's my instant read on it, but we'll see what happens when the primary comes. Tom? Uh, I, I could not have said that better myself. Carlos Baruf, uh, for our listeners, is a, a, he's a, he's a home builder, a developer from the Gulf Coast of Florida, somewhat south of the Tampa Bay area, and his, his net worth is somewhere between, and they, and they don't have to be precise when they file these forms, somewhere between $47 million and in the mid-$100 million. Um, and he said he's going to spend 1.1, 1.2 million on this on this primary pipe dream, and I got to believe it's it, he is doing it simply for ego. Uh, I, I I can't imagine that he thinks that he's got any chance of of winning this. But again, uh, if Marco doesn't win by 40, 50 points, then there's reason to suspect that there might be just a little bit of weakness there. That the that the that the ads that will focus on how much work he missed when from the Senate when he was running for president, uh, with no guarantee that it might not happen again in four years when he'll when he'll again have two years running on his uh, on his on his term, it, it will just might resonate with uh, with a very purple state that might be looking hard at elect, uh, uh, looking hard at going for a Democrat uh, president again. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that this is going to be a, a good one to watch. Uh, but the wild cards, the wild cards really are the two guys running for the Democrat nomination. And we talked about that last time. There's not much to add to it again. Uh, that Patrick Murphy is an empty suit filled with ambition, and the suit was bought by his dad. And Alan Grayson is just an absolute sideshow hoot. Right guy, but he's but he is he is. Way, way. I, I, he's almost a freak show. Out where the bus. Add another way to that, Tom. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> Grayson's way out there, and um, uh, lately, uh, for our listeners, Patrick Murphy, uh, the young rising Democrat, or uh, would like to believe he's rising, uh, and they've been blanketing the airwaves here too with direct pleas from Barack Obama to vote for Patrick Murphy. And this is not a, a small media buy. This has been uh, all in for the Democrats behind their guy. So I would also uh, say that unless Patrick Murphy wins by um, a secretariat-like margin in the Belmont, um, 
there's trouble in River City for him too. What about down ballot beyond uh, below the Senate races? Anything of interest uh, below the Senate situation in the state that uh, you guys are looking at? Well, there's one where the uh, former governor, Charlie Crist, uh, is over in St. Petersburg in a newly redrawn district that seems to favor Democrats, at least that's the conventional wisdom. It was all part of uh, the court-ordered uh, redistricting throughout Florida. And uh, Charlie just, shall we say, has a checkered past in Florida. But uh, he's up against, I guess you would call David Jolly an incumbent, right, Tom? Um, he is an incumbent. Well, he is an incumbent. And now, now David Jolly's uh, he's the Republican. He's done a pretty good job um, stepping into that uh, congressional seat. But now the lines have been redrawn, and it's questionable whether he can win. Jolly was going to run for Senate until Marco Rubio got in the race. So he dropped back, and now he's running for uh, for reelection in the new district. That one really is one that Democrats feel they have to pick that up. Uh, it's It's their best chance. Uh, to gain a seat that has long gone to the Republicans. So that's one we're going to watch real closely, but that won't be decided until November. Right. And and we were talking before about what sort of message Republicans need to have moving forward after this November if the debacle that we're predicting actually happens. And and David Jolly is, is exactly the sort of guy – that a more moderate Republican Party, a, 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 a Republican Party that remains conservative but also is thoughtful about the way it presents its positions, uh, should 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 look to moving forward. And it's going to be a big test because this is not exactly a purple district. It's a it's a light blue district that's been, as Joe says, redrawn to favor a Democrat. Um, and uh, if if the jolly message. If the combination of Jolly's incumbency, what he's done as as a as a congressman, and his ability to make that message—I mean, he's he's against big money in politics. He is a reach out kind of guy. If his message can sell, then his might in this in this test district, that might be a place that Republicans would look in the future to say, "This is what we have to do." Yeah, and and people might remember Jolly from a, a 60 Minutes segment uh, where he kind of made a name for himself by refusing to go into the fundraising room. And he's filed uh, bills that, that would make it illegal for sitting uh, congressmen like he is now to have to spend their time doing these, uh, these robocalls and, and direct appeals for hours a day when they're supposed to be doing the people's business. So that has kind of made him sort of, a, I don't know, a, a character within the Republican Party. And a lot of people didn't like what he did um, up there. And uh, But I know as a, as a voter and, and somebody who tries uh, to look at both sides of it, I thought it was a, a great move by him. So, you know, good on that, and let's see if the voters agree. And Jolly, of course, comes from uh, a history with um, former long, long-time Congressman Bill Young, correct? Correct. That's right. That was that was Bill Young's district, uh, and he won that. 
uh, in a special election against Alex Sink, uh, who was hand-chosen by the Democratic National Committee um, to run for that position. She even had to move out of her uh, home over across the bay in, in, in one of the suburbs of Tampa to move into the district uh, that Young represented so she could run. It was a close race, but she, wa- uh, she was defeated. When you when you said Joe, when you said move Joe, did I did I detect air quotes around that? Uh, I'll I'll leave you to interpret that. <laughs> I saw air quotes in it, and I'm uh, and I'm in Washington, so uh, there yeah. you go. I, I yeah, I thought so. Yeah, there is so no much video really evidence move. of that. No, that that's true. <laughs> there there is no video evidence, which is why we are the, you know, we're a podcast, the politically incorrect one with. Uh, I'm Jim Williams, your host, uh, Tom Jackson, Joe Henderson with me. Guys, just before we duck out here, a bit, uh, something I wrote about this uh, this week. I'm not sure if you have any interest in it, but throw it out there anyway. The possibility of the, or the growing possibility as it looks, that St. Petersburg is going to be home to the Cuban consul, uh, the consulate, uh, is a strong possibility it looks like at this point any thoughts uh guys on that as a naturalized native of the city of tampa i am outraged it should be here that's all i have to say on the su- on the subject well and and i would kind of layer on that is a whole uh i, I think a, in large measure would would go on the desk of the famously democratic mayor of tampa bob buckhorn who has been staunchly opposed to having the consulate in Tampa. And I disagree. I think Buckhorn's a fine mayor. He's done a lot of terrific things, but I greatly disagree with him on that subject, that that consulate should be in Ybor City, which is the Latin section of Tampa, and it, uh, it, should, there's, it should be case closed. But you're right. St. Petersburg is bustling, growing, vibrant, uh, doing a lot of great things like this. And uh, I think they, there's a real good chance they're going to end up with the consulate. Well, I think your point about the mayor is really the key. Uh, there was uh, a great deal of of, le- of, um, of very good lobbying by the mayor of, uh, is it Mr. Klinsman? Is yes. that how to pronounce his name? Christman. Christman, yeah. Christman. Yeah. Klinsman's Mayor Christman in coach. St. Petersburg. Uh, seem to connect very well with a number of the key people uh, in the uh, who will make that decision down there. And they seem to feel very comfortable with them. And because there wasn't any meeting between the Tampa delegation and the key people who make those decisions, it kind of left Tampa out in the cold. Uh, as someone who spent a great deal of my uh, early life in the Ybor City area, I mean, there's no question that uh, the history of Florida and specifically Ybor City uh, with, you know, Jose Marti and the fact that the Rough Riders stayed, you know, in Ybor City before Teddy Roosevelt and uh, the gang headed down to uh, to Cuba. It's just the history is so rich with the cigar uh, industry and all of that to let that go and, and and go to a nice, beautiful place. Nothing wrong with St. Petersburg, uh, but it's just the history of Tampa and 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 Cuba 
long before Miami was even thought of. Uh, it just rings kind of hollow not to have uh, the consulate there. And, and the consulate, for those who don't know, I mean, it's a very important thing to have. I mean, there hasn't been one since 1961. And to, to uh, it's really the, the, the commerce area of how it's kind of the gateway to Cuba for all intents and purposes. And to not have that uh, in, in, in Ybor City is a bad thing. But I guess if it's not going to be in Ybor City, at least to have it in the Tampa Bay area, and especially since they've normalized to some degree the airline schedule and, and soon to, to do the same with the cruise schedule, at least they'll have that. So at least it'll, it'll be located in the Tampa Bay area, even if it isn't in Ybor City. Yeah, well, a lot of people, Jim, think that uh, Buckhorn arrived at his position uh, with an eye on running for governor uh, in 2018, because if you if you are pro normalization with Cuba, it could hurt you in Miami Dade, which is uh, a Democrat cannot be elected governor in Florida without Miami Dade coming through for them, so. Uh, that could have something to do with it. Uh, other than that, I really don't know uh, what why the mayor would be opposing this. It just seems to be swimming against the tide, but, you know, it is done. And right now you are correct. It looks like it's going to be in St. Pete. Yeah, Joe, I, I think you're exactly right on your call there, but I have to wonder about the changing demographics of the Cuban population of, of Miami-Dade. I mean, the, the, the people who are hardcore opposed to normalization of relations with with Cuba are in their late 50s, 60s, 70s, and and the and the folks who are going to be voting, uh, and not to say that older people don't vote and vote in big numbers because they do, uh, but a lot of those, a lot of the people who are going to be core and central to where uh, Miami Dade goes in 2018 are the. the the people in the 30s, 40s, early 50s who think, you know, it's time. What we've been doing hasn't been working. I think what we're doing right now is not working very well either. But but those, uh, I think the people who might sway Miami-Dade are those who have come around and are saying, we've got to engage. The, the Castros can't last forever. Well, there's also the big money in Miami-Dade, uh, the old money, I should say, in Miami-Dade in the Cuban community, uh, you know, under no circumstances would they would they allow that to happen. But you're right, this, the changing demographics uh, would lead one to believe that uh, it, for all for all intents and purposes, if you take a look at the at the at the cross tabs of all of the different polls that have been taken, there we're talking about literally about a nine block area of Miami. And that's about it. Beyond that, everybody else, statewide, nationwide, thinks that you know it's about time that we uh, that we take a uh, an opportunity to get back to Cuba. And I can say this, and I'll, I'll I'll end it with this: that every time I talk to a number of my Canadian friends who talk to me about their trips to Cuba and their enjoyment of the opportunity to go to Cuba and uh, and holiday there. Uh, on a regular basis, I think some people forget that we are—we really are one of the few countries that do not go to Cuba. There are people from, from uh, you know, from Europe and from Canada that that enjoy going to Cuba and enjoy doing 
uh, you know, visiting there on a, on, a, on a rather consistent basis. So it's not like we're keeping the Cuban, uh, uh, the Cuban government from not uh, making money. Uh, they're doing it. They're just uh, not doing it with, uh, with our cash. But anyway, that's, uh, we'll put the bow on that one. We'll put the bow on the show, gentlemen, for yet another uh, installment of the Politically Incorrect podcast. Uh, so before we go, any final thoughts, guys? Uh, give it to you, Joe Henderson, first. Anything uh, that uh, that we should be looking for coming out of your, uh, I was going to say typewriter, but that dates me way too long. Uh, yeah, so you don't want to go there. Um, well, I would say that uh, there's a pretty good chance that all the outrage that is being directed at Donald Trump uh, today for his comments will probably be redirected in a new direction at Donald Trump for something else stupid, he says. Um, I'm I'm putting the over-under at like 36 hours, and I'm betting the under. Okay. Tom? <laughs> I am not taking that bet. Oh, come on. Just- I would just I would just say the man has no impulse control. Uh, let me say that I still say that uh, assuming the debates happen, that that is where this election will be decided. That if if uh, as, as reprehensible as he seems to be right now, uh, if Donald Trump can get on the debate stage and is alone on the debate stage with Hillary Clinton and comes off sounding like he loves America and is is dead set on putting Americans back to work and defending our borders and, and restoring law and order, whether those are whether the law and order meme stacks up against statistics or not, uh, if he seems reasonable on the debate stage, everything changes and everything that we say between now and then doesn't mean a thing. So I'll say this. I not that we are betting people by any stretch of the imagination, but I put it, I'm going to put it at 75% that they have one debate. That that's where we're looking at this point in time. I think behind the scenes, the, uh, the folks at the, uh, at Trump tower are saying, you know, look guys, we'll do one debate, but we're not interested in, in doing three. I think the Clinton situation reminds me a great deal of the, the Gore Bush situation in 2000 when all Bush basically had to do was show up and he won the the debate because everybody was thinking that Al Gore was such a a better political wonk in that regard. And and George Bush came off looking really good in, uh, in the first debate out of that. So I'm not sure Clinton wants to do three debates. I think that it may end up being one, possibly two, but I don't see we're going to get three debates out of it, but one final thing for each of you guys. Obviously, we know because we all are at NewstalkFlorida.com where we pray that you go and read our stuff. But uh, social media-wise, I know both of you have very active accounts. So please, Joe, where can we find you on social media? You can find me at the initial J Henderson Tampa. Uh, that's on Twitter. And uh, my Facebook uh, page where I put all my political ramblings is uh, Joe Henderson columns, commentary, and such. Tom Jackson, 
And I and I go to both of those places frequently. I also go to News Talk Florida frequently, and I don't pray you go there. I say you need to go there because there's a lot of good stuff at NewstalkFlorida.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Thomas Jacks Tampa, T-H-O-M-A-S-J-A-X, Tampa, and my Facebook page, Tom Jackson, a journalist entrepreneur. Come on by. There you go. You'll enjoy going to both of those places, and following these guys on Twitter is always a hoot as well. Uh, Jim Williams here, and you can get me at NTFLA underscore politics. That's NTFLA underscore politics. And we hope that you've enjoyed this edition of the Politically Incorrect Podcast. Join us next time right here on the Politically Incorrect Podcast.